The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Hello and welcome to Squawk Box. Here are your headlines this morning. The Dow posts its fifth straight day of gains for the first time since May, with retail stocks leading the charge after earnings show resilient consumer spending. Walmart hikes its four-year outlook after the U.S. retail giant tops second quarter revenue and earnings forecasts, sending shares up over 5%. But CEO Doug McMillan tells CNBC price pressures are weighing on consumers. It's a conflicting period in terms of the data. I mean, if you look at what's happening across categories and across income levels, inflation is having an impact, particularly for those that don't have as much money. So we see them behaving in different ways. Chinese factories are ordered to shut down for six days in a bid to save electricity as a heat wave puts added pressure on the grid with Foxconn and Toyota among those affected. And crude prices recover after hitting their lowest level since before Russia's invasion of Ukraine, with a drop in U.S. stockpiles highlighting a tightening market. Good morning and a warm welcome to Squawk Box. Thank you for joining Karen and myself this morning. Let's kick off with a look at Wall Street trade. Yesterday, most U.S. stocks ended the day higher. The Dow Jones racked up about 0.7% worth of gains. S&P 500 gained about 0.2%. Retail earnings reports showed consumers are still shopping despite high inflation. So some better than expected numbers out of Walmart and Home Depot. We're going to look at those two stocks in just a moment. But the NASDAQ, the tech-heavy index, did not manage to gain on the day. We actually ended about 0.2% lower. We did see some cracks in the housing market yesterday. Data showed that the rate of new home construction in the United States fell to its lowest level in July since early 2021. So not all positive news, but overall we did see sentiment hold up. Now let's turn to those U.S. retail stocks because they were really the focal point of trade yesterday. Here is a look at some of the names that traded higher. It was not just Walmart and Home Depot in focus, but also some of the other big names getting a boost from the overall lift to sentiment. Macy's gained nearly 6%. Dollar Tree gained about 1.4%. Dollar General also moved higher. And then you've got Williams-Sonoma gaining about 5% as well. So real decent day for those retail stocks. Turning to oil, it was a different story. Here's a picture for oil um, right now. We've got WTI and Brent trading higher after we saw a further plunge in the price of oil yesterday. Brent and WTI each fell back about 3% or so. This morning we're trading with WTI around $87 a barrel. Brent crude, meanwhile, trading around $93 a barrel. And as you heard in the headlines, this is after falling to the lowest level since before Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Let's take a look at Asian markets and how things are looking in the overnight session. We've got green across the board there. So that positive sentiment on Wall Street seems to be feeding through to the Asian session. Shanghai Composite up about 0.3% despite some new concerns around um, COVID, uh, around uh, shutdowns of factories in China. This time not COVID related, but actually heat wave related. But we are seeing resilience in the mainland China market. Hang Seng also um, catching up this morning up about 1%. It is the Nikkei 225 though that is in 
in most focus in the overnight session. Let's take a closer look at where things stand. If that 29,000 handle looks new to you, it's because it's the first time that we have crossed that level in more than seven months. We are up more than 1% in Japan right now. Uniqlo is providing a bit of a boost there. We've got shares trading higher in that stock as well as several others. Karen. Certainly a standout performance to be positive here to date. Uh, thank you very much, Juliana. Chinese Premier Li Keqiang is urging officials from six key provinces that account for about 40% of the country's economy to adopt stronger pro-growth policies. Speaking at a symposium held in the tech hub of Shenzhen, Li called on the leaders to help boost consumption and offer more fiscal support after monthly data showed spending and output falling short of expectations. Li also vowed to reasonably step up policy support to stabilise employment and prices and ensure economic growth. Factories in China's uh, Sichuan province have been ordered to shut down for six days in order to ease a power shortage. The country has been facing its fiercest heat wave in six decades, causing a spike in demand for air conditioning in offices and homes. Sichuan is home to roughly 84 million residents and is a key manufacturing location for the semiconductor and solar panel industries, including Apple supplier Foxconn and Intel. Let's get to David Roche, President, Independent Strategy. David, I can see in some of your recent research that you're not holding mainland stocks, but I want to ask you about the story around persistent energy problems combined with what we're seeing, a fading economy around COVID restrictions, plus the geopolitics here. It feels as though some of the appetite around China markets is not as strong as it could be. <laughs> I think that's to say the least. I think a lot of investors have taken their, the decision to actually um, stay away on due diligence grounds, uh, which, is, which is our position. Uh, but what we're seeing at the moment, you mentioned um, the power shortage. Now, the power shortage is caused by heat and demand for aircon. It's not quite the same as last year when uh, clean air legislation meant that uh, generators ran out of coal. Uh, our coal was too expensive and they were making huge losses. This year, coal is actually, in July, production was up 16%. What you're looking at is extreme temperatures, uh, even by our extreme uh, examples in the area. And then we've seen on the problems related to the mortgage strikes and the property developer loans, the government mooted the idea this morning of creating a fund uh, covering about six of the stronger developers which would guarantee their bonds and allow them to raise money and complete the homes which have not been completed for people who have already paid for them. Now, that's why there's some bullishness in the market. But these are really very big ongoing problems between developers, between mortgage strikes, uh, between the bank deposits in weak rural banks, which I think are going to weigh down on growth and no amount of speeches will change that. I'd say the take home is that China is probably moving to at best a three to 4% growth rate, possibly lower, which in their terms is of course, uh, really a recession. David, what does it mean in a global context? Because in previous downturns, China has effectively sailed to the rescue of the West with the fairly large scale stimulus policies. And as Li Keqiang talks about stimulus here, it does feel more targeted than what we've seen previously. So do we see China as providing any sort of support to the global economy in the next 24 months? No, I don't think so. I think there are two reasons for that. Number one is the room for monetary stimulus really is there, but it doesn't work. 
the system is flush with liquidity. The lower they bring interest rates, the more they print money, the, the more moderate lending becomes. The second is fiscal policy. Well, the fiscal deficit on an aggregate basis is someplace between 16 and 18% of GDP. It's very hard to make it 20, even if you are borrowing that money from yourselves. Uh, in other words, the overriding lesson is that it's easy to have a command economy where you can control the exchange rate, you can control borrowing, you can control the path of the economy. When the command economy is booming, when things start to go wrong and the structural problems come to the fore, the command economy doesn't really uh, obey the levers anymore. And, and, and you, you can look at a lot of speeches, but you don't look at a lot of results. I think that's where we are. Now, if you pile on top of that, the fact that we are in an increasing uh, Cold War uh, worldwide, with the world splitting into various groups, uh, which you know are on the brink of a hot war constantly, there's no way in which trade is going to allow the Chinese to transmit economic strength either to their own economy or from their own economy to the world economy. So the lengthy answer to your uh, pertinent question is uh, no, that's not going to happen. <laughs> David, appreciate the insight, uh, however lengthy. Um, it's certainly interesting to hear your views. I want to shift focus to gas markets because you've got a contrarian view here, which really stood out to me reading through your latest research. You think that the EU may actually have enough gas supply over the winter and beyond to what you say defeat Russia. What gives you the confidence? Why do you think that Europe is perhaps in a better position than many believe it is? Well, the reason is that gas stocks in Europe are now 75% uh, of storage capacity, which is 20 months of consumption. So provided Russia doesn't turn off every single spigot, uh, every single gas line to the West, and there are lots of complications for Russia in doing that, the storage is going to continue to fill and I can see it reaching 80 or 90 percent before the really cold winter months come in, which means that there is enough to get through in most countries. Now, there are certain countries uh, like in Eastern Europe, the far Eastern Europe and the Balkans, and of course, Ukraine, which are not at the stage of having that much gas. But the gas storage situation in the way rest of Europe is actually progressing according to plan. Uh, now, what is going wrong with uh, the famous forecast or not so famous forecast, which you mentioned, is that, of course, since it was written, gas prices in Europe have continued to go up. That is partly related to a scramble for LNG uh, coming into the winter in Asia, which is pushing up gas prices worldwide and bringing in speculators. Now, I'm not saying that uh, they're wrong and I'm right. Uh, or that I'm God and they are not. What I am saying is that the fundamentals in Europe on gas, and I'm not saying that things look better on the war, point to Putin starting to lose his leverage on energy supply as a means of strangling Europe uh, by the end of this year. David, uh, even if we do have enough gas to get through the winter, as you say, in Europe, we're still going to be facing extremely high prices. We know that Germany is um, introducing a levy, which is going to make things a lot more costly for people. How confident are you that public resolve to continue standing up to Russia will remain if we see the public come under massive pressure when it comes to their wallets? I think it's very difficult. 
Um, my own view is that Europe will hang in there and be tough. Uh, but that's a, that's a, that's judgmental. It's an opinion. And the risk is exactly as you said, that rising gas prices in Europe actually make people abandon the cause of Ukraine for their own, for their own wallets. Uh, furthermore, it, of course, uh, is a major factor in hitting uh, European household purchasing power, because although wages and salaries are rising, uh, inflation is rising a lot faster for gas, for oil, uh, for food. So you have, I think, inevitably got what I would call a war session caused by supply side disruptions and politics from Russia. Uh, and the question then is exactly the one that you pose. Will Europe hang tough? Yes, there's enough gas. People don't freeze in their flats, but uh, they, they are getting poorer, not richer. What one hopes is that the amount of political resolve against Russia and the amount of household wealth will be enough to carry forward the Europeans on the completely correct course that they have taken in opposing Russia. But we do not know. It's economics over political principles. Let me steer you towards markets. We've got uh, head-spinning trade investors now trading around this Powell pivot. We've seen markets climb a long way off the lows from mid-June. Some markets more than others. I mean, Japanese stocks today, the fact they're actually positive so far for the year to date. <laughs> and does this give us some hope that we may see a suitable recovery that takes indices globally towards positive levels year to date? Well, it shows you that we have not tipped straight into a recession due to job destruction and the erosion of, uh, of household purchasing power. If you look around the world and you compare what we're saying to each other today to maybe three weeks ago, I mean, the biggest danger of recession in, in the world today is really Europe uh, due to the effects of the war and what we've been talking about, and China, where we have a great many structural problems which are now coming to the fore at a most untimely uh, moment. Uh, but the, 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 three weeks ago, the big shift was America. Uh, you know, in, consumer price inflation was going to erode. Uh, household spending, there wasn't enough wealth, there wasn't enough uh, excess savings put aside during the COVID period, and that we were all doomed. Now I would say it is pretty clear that household wealth uh, and the actual creation of jobs, even if not as strong as before, are together with rising wages, albeit not in real terms, much, uh, they are seemingly combining to keep the economy away from recession, probably at 1% growth rates, but away from recession. That's what the markets are reflecting. They're saying, okay, that's what's going to happen. The central banks are going to push, but not push as hard as they did. The ECB will probably stop by the end of the year. Uh, they'll have to. Uh, and the Fed is probably going to get us to 350, 375 and pause there. And that's already built into expectations. So you have two things, the lack of extreme recession globally. And secondly, the fact that the economies will be growing slowly enough and prices for oil, energy and food will have tipped down, producing something like a bit of a uh, the disinflation in order for central banks to pause. That's what's driving markets. Now, I wouldn't think, think that it can drive them forever uh, because there will be reversals the other way, but it's the rally that we talked about uh, which has come through. I would say it's probably 75% over now. 
David, I appreciate the views on, on the market rally that we've had. David Roche with us, President Independent Strategy. Speaking of central banks, uh, the latest here on the agenda today, New Zealand's central bank has hiked rates by 50 basis points for the fourth meeting in a row, bringing its benchmark rate to a seven-year high of 3%. In a statement, the Reserve Bank of New Zealand said it intends to continue hiking as long as core inflation remains above target and labour sources remain scarce. The RBNZ has been a front-runner among central banks in its tightening cycle. It's sort of a badge of honour in this type of market, isn't it? <laughs> Our colleagues in Asia will be speaking to New Zealand Central Bank Governor Adrian Orr on Thursday morning. You can catch that interview at uh, 1 o'clock in the morning, uh, CET. Coming up on this show, fears of recession and a supply glut drive oil prices to a six-month low as OPEC's new Secretary General faces up to a series of challenges in the energy markets. We'll cross live to Hadley in Vienna next. And for more on the concerns over a slowdown in China, check out the Squawk Box podcast. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. Germany has agreed a deal with gas suppliers Uniper, AVE and VNG to keep two floating natural gas terminals fully supplied from this winter as the country seeks to reduce its reliance on Russian imports. Economy Minister Robert Habeck says German suppliers have been able to secure gas import deals and said talks with Qatar over a possible deal are continuing despite a cost dispute. Germany may keep its last three nuclear power plants running past the end of this year. The government denies a decision has already been made, though, as it awaits the results of ongoing stress tests. Gas prices continue to scale new heights in both Europe and the United States during Tuesday's sessions. Amid fears a cut-off in Russian supplies will lead to fierce global competition for LNG supplies heading into the winter months. European benchmark gas prices jumped to €251 per megawatt hour Tuesday, roughly the equivalent of $400 per barrel of oil, while US gas prices rose around 7%. Meanwhile, Russian energy giant Gazprom is warning that European gas prices could soar another 60% as export and production continue to drop on the back of Western sanctions over Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The European Union says it is evaluating Iran's latest response to its nuclear deal proposal as the two sides look to revive the landmark 2015 JCPOA agreement. The U.S. State Department said Washington is also assessing the proposal, although the contents remain confidential. The International Energy Agency estimates an agreement and easing of sanctions against Iran would add hundreds of thousands of additional barrels of oil to global markets, leading to a potential supply glut. 
Oil prices have seen some relief this morning amid a larger-than-expected drop in crude inventories, having dropped to their lowest level since Russia's invasion of Ukraine on Tuesday. The three-day drop in crude prices follows the prospect of a deal between the West and Iran, as well as a series of weak economic indicators out of China and the U.S. ratcheting up the prospect of a recession. Those recession fears are just one of several challenges facing OPEC's new Secretary General, Hatem al-Gais. In its monthly report last week, OPEC cut its oil demand forecast by 260,000 barrels per day. Questions also remain over the organization's relationship with Russia, although al-Gais has insisted the partnership is vital. Well, Hadley joins us now with more from the OPEC headquarters in Vienna. Hadley, good morning. Um, you ran us through earlier this week uh, what we m might expect from this um, major interview you've got later this morning with the new Secretary General. Um, just run us through what is top of mind for energy market participants as you um, hold this conversation in just a couple of hours. I think it's really significant that I'm standing here in what is essentially, you know, the OPEC capital of the world, which is Vienna, of course, the headquarters of that organization, of the so-called cartel, at a time when we are so very much focused on the potential for a new JCPOA, a renewal of that agreement that could potentially bring Iranian crude back onto the market. That's one uh, potential um, outlier headwind that no doubt about it, um, the OPEC plus organization is very much focused on. And of course, they all are speaking about uh, Russia's continued participation in that group, the vital importance of keeping them within those conversations as we head into the next year. And frankly, the bite of Russian sanctions expected to come online in December, what that could potentially do to energy markets at a time when Europe, as you all very well know, is talking about burning wood as a direct result of the fact that they're trying to wean themselves off Russian gas. They're looking to use more oil. Where is that oil going to come from? How are they going to pay for it? How are they going to get it to market? So there are a lot of questions surrounding on uh, supply and demand, the structural issues that we're seeing with China right now, whether or not that demand is going to continue at the same pace. Remember, when we spoke about these Aramco earnings that were out over the weekend, the company essentially saying that they were going to plow all that cash into not just uh, renewables, but also into their core product, which, of course, is oil production. They want to get to that issue of a spare capacity. They continue to urge other governments and other international oil and gas companies to do the same. They believe that oil demand is going to continue to grow over the next decade. That's a consistent narrative that I've heard from oil watchers and, frankly, members of the OPEC Plus uh, group themselves. And I'll be asking His Excellency Haitham Algeis, the new Secretary General of OPEC, about that a little later on in the morning. But I want to give you a sound right now from Bob McNallan. Of course, he's the president and uh, CEO of Rapidan Energy. And I asked him specifically about the challenges facing this OPEC organization, frankly, at a time when they've never been more relevant to what's happening in the market. Listen in. Right now, there is so much two-way risk in this market. And with only less than 2 million barrels a day of spare, the path of least resistance for oil supply is probably just to hunker down and keep her steady through the end of the year. But, you know, he's got work to do. They have to figure out quotas and reference levels for the whole group after December. And when we get into next year, we have enormous bi-directional risk. Will Russia go off by 2 million barrels a day or not? Is demand going to explode like OPEC Plus says, or will it go into a recessionary downturn? So the OPEC, OPEC Plus organization will be extremely relevant, especially next year, especially if we have a weakening market and they have to consider cuts. 
And speaking of those um, challenges that the OPEC Plus group is going to have to look at, um, one of the things that we've been talking about earlier this morning, obviously the potential of Iranian crude to come back on the market. Uh, Dan Jurgen a little earlier in the week, essentially making it clear that he believes that it would be significant to put a million barrels back on the market as a result of these conversations with Iran. But at the same time, that's not going to be enough, obviously, to make up the loss of Russian crude, what that could potentially mean for those conversations going forward. And obviously, we've heard in just the last 24 hours from Russia's president essentially saying, that what the United States is doing with provoking uh, problems with China and over Taiwan um, is is not really helping the situation. And, you know, the man has a point. I mean, even if you take uh, into account that this is an illegal invasion uh, that Russia has staged in Ukraine, there is a bigger narrative here over what the China dynamic will actually look like going forward. We even heard those rumors, as you guys remember, about the potential visit of Xi Jinping to Saudi Arabia and what that really meant in the geopolitical sense. So a lot of different factors out there. And and frankly, something that I hope that we'll be able to address with His Excellency Haitham Al-Gais, the new chairman of OPEC, Secretary General of OPEC, I should say, a little later on in the morning, guys. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.